Hello and a warm welcome to the last of our Pipe Up the Organ podcast series. Um, One of my great pleasures having done this, and it's a selfish one at that, is that I've had the chance over the last couple of months to speak about music to friends of mine. And that's a particular joy today to welcome my great friend, Francis O'Gorman, who by day is the Saintsbury Professor of English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. And in his spare time, such of that, it's not very much, I suppose, but in his spare time, he's a very fine organist too and plays at Holy Trinity Church, Micklegate, one of York's most historic churches. So, Francis, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, you've, uh, I'll spare your blushes, but you, you, you do have a rather glittering CV in the English literature field. But I know that, that some years ago, when you were thinking about going to university, you applied for an organ scholarship at Oxford and you were awarded one. But that wasn't to study English, was it? No, I, initially, um, I, I did go up to Oxford to, um, to, to read music. I went to the organ scholarship trials, I should say, planning, planning to read music. But what I really enjoyed was playing the organ, and for better or for worse, I thought I was I was better at, at English literature as an academic subject, and I was very fortunate to go to a college, Lady Margaret Hall, where that was welcomed. Actually, they, they some colleges then as now insisted for perfectly reasonable grounds that the organ scholar read music. Um, uh, LMH didn't mind me reading English, um, and it was um, it, it actually worked out really well having those two things going on side by side. And I've sort of ended up doing the same thing for the rest of my life, really. <laughs> and did, did you you didn't actually go there to read music at all? That was a did, did you start English as soon as you got there, or did you have a, a small period? Uh, my assumption during the organ scholarship trials was was that I was going to read music. And um, I was accepted on that basis, but I'm, I, I lost my nerve before I actually arrived. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, ch- and they allowed me to change to English. Gosh, and I'm really pleased in these, these podcast series that we've actually got off the topic of music quite a lot. Just tell us perhaps in a nutshell about what, you know, what your day job is. I know you're called the Saintsbury Professor. And of course, one of the great things about your, I guess, the, the, your predecessor by many, um, is that Sainsbury was a wine critic, wasn't he, as well as a very distinguished literary critic. So how does, how, I suppose, how did you get from LMH now to being a professor at the University of Edinburgh? Thank you. Yes, I mean, I should say I, I, I'm ridiculously in awe of George Sainsbury. And it's an extraordinary honour to hold a chair named after him. Yes, he was a very fine wine critic as well. That's absolutely right. Just uh, <laughs> Saintsbury's cellar book remains a, a kind of touchstone of what to do with your wine collection. I taught in Oxford at Pembroke actually. Um, with its uh, was there when that lovely little organ was put in. Um, um, uh, I taught English literature there for three years, and then I had a variety of research positions, and I moved in 1999 to a permanent lectureship in the School of English at the University of Leeds and I was there for um, 16 years and I left with a personal chair in Victorian literature Um, and musically I'd I'd had a a variety of different posts um, the most significant of which or the most demanding of which was being organist of St Peter's Harrogate with its manual Schulze organ. Oh yes, yes. Rather fine creature it is indeed. It's a lovely church that, isn't it? I know the one. Yes. Has it been tricky over the years to have, and particularly with a job like the Harrogate one, to 
I guess, have enough time to practice the organ? Is that ever, has it always felt like a, a nice hobby as something to do as light relief or has it ever felt to you, you know, gosh, perhaps this is almost taking over as my day job? Um, I, I have found that just at times when I'm, you know, I'm flat out writing a lecture or writing an article or reading for some, some seminars and I look at the music list for Sunday and I find, you know, there's some quite big magna nunc and sometimes I do think, have I got myself into this position? I, I know I can play this piece, but I usually think I can, but sometimes I know I can't. But I'm very lucky in having a digital practice organ here. I mean, I, I think without that, I couldn't do it properly. But yes, I mean, sometimes it is, it, it's a squeeze, but it, it always, as soon as I put down a chord and I hear a choir come in behind me in those days, which I hope will come back, um, it all feels so, so worth it. I'm just picking up on that. You mentioned the digital organ at home. Uh, you've done quite a lot of, shall we call it, Zooming services. How's that work? I confess I haven't. I, I went in on Sunday to play for a mass in Leeds. I was up in the organ loft. We had a, a cantor seemingly metres and metres away from me and we had a, an organ and cantor mass. And that's really, uh, I think that's only the second, as it were, service with um, live organ music we've had since lockdown began how does it work doing it by zoom this is quite quite a almost alien concept to me yes um it's i mean zoom has been a lifesaver hasn't it i mean i think almost possibly literally in some people's cases mm-hmm. one of the few disadvantages that i perceive of zoom is that live streaming music through it particularly hymns it comes with some quite particular challenges unless one mutes the entire congregation and that's really <laughs> unnerving because you're just playing the hymn to your own sitting room but if you don't mute them you hear a, a singing at very much out of time sometimes a line and a half out of what you're you're playing so it's oh, really well wow. it's, it's it's a very it's an odd experience and so you 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 get i found myself just getting into a position where i just absolutely ruthlessly play to time and try not to hear what it is that i'm supposed to be accompanying because if i attempted to accompany what i could hear it all fall apart <laughs> but in normal time let's, let's call it peacetime you've got a very fine choir there haven't you in in uh, micklegate yes we're we're, we're we're very lucky we have a, a wonderful choral director mark wolfdale who's a marvelous baritone and we have eight choral scholars who are undergraduates or graduate students and york's obviously as you know well, it's an extremely <laughs> musical city. Um, so we've been able to draw on some really talented people. Um, uh, one has recently just gone on to a lay clerkship in Winchester Cathedral, and one has got um, onto the Genesis 16, the you know the Young Voices yeah, program. That's so we um we, we we produce a really lovely sound and it's accompanied by the 1964 hill norman and beard organ um which has been carefully looked after by um, jeffrey coffin of what was principal pipe organs it's uh, it, the leather work is now you know more than 100 years old so it really it could do, it could do with a bit of um, tidying up, and and we 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 are planning on that in in the future. But it, musically, it's a really nice um, uh, arrangement. 
does sound lovely. It's, and um, in fact, we had a guest on the other week, Sean Montgomery, who recorded a piece on the organ of Hepton Store, which was also um, Hill Norman and Beard. And I kind of think it must have been from the same period. He was playing some Hindemith on it, Hindemith One. Um, and of course, you know, another tangent, the Leeds Cathedral organ is, is Norman and Beard from the early 1900s. But certainly it's a, it's, it's a fine vintage of instruments, I think, to, to create such a variety out there. Yes, I played that Hepton Stall instrument as well. It's on a it's on a um, kind of rude um, gallery, isn't it? So it speaks both exactly that. directions. Yeah. Big, perfect location for it. Yes, I think. I mean, it's not a sound that everybody likes, but it's. I think it must have been a pretty good time for HNB in the in the sixties. There's a lot of contracts, and it's. Um, I, I, the, you know, there would be a temptation, I suppose, to try to change the sound and make it more you know uh, accessible so to speak to, to to contemporary ears but i feel rather strongly that the one in the prior church is it, it it's very much a period piece um and it would be um it would be just excellent if we could you know as i hope we will have it cleaned we'll just make one or two tonal adjustments to it not in, not adding any new pipe work but separating a rank from the mixture so we can draw that independently for instance um yeah. but there's not you know it's a large instrument it's um it's got some beautiful uh quiet uh sounds particularly the great flutes and the choir flutes and um it has that glorious pedal piston called full organ and my goodness me is that a shattering sound <laughs> And it's a comprehensive enough instrument to do recitals on, isn't it? Yes, I mean, well, we, we, we were looking forward very much to welcoming um, Angela Metzger for Angela oh, Metzger yes. for the Leeds International Organ, Organ Festival, which, of course, <laughs> couldn't happen. And we very, very much hope we can welcome her back next year. And yes, uh, we, we had a, a series of recitals planned for October from from York organists so it, it is certainly good enough for you know pretty wide range of repertoire. It'd be interesting to get your take on this and we and you mentioned um, Angela Metzger who might even talk about it later the lovely program uh, she provided for us and I, I would particularly like the middle pieces by uh, I'd not heard of this man's name but Moritz Eggert and I think she played it on an organ in Cologne which is in a, a church that I believe is now used as a museum um, and in fact, Michael Bonaventure from Edinburgh recorded on it as well uh, and did a concert. But it's this amazing sort of flight deck. It looks like something out of the 1960s Starship Enterprise. Um, but I think it's got percussion stops and all kinds of things. But getting back to the point now, um, we're obviously hoping, as you are, that next year we can have some live organ recitals. But what do you reckon we can take out of this slightly, well, more than slightly odd period? Are there any, do you, do you think there might be a time for live streamed recitals where a, a, a lone organist sits in a church or a concert hall with a couple of cameras, someone on a mixing desk, and that concert is actually broadcast to the world. Uh, and we, let, let's say for argument's sake, uh, we, we banish audiences, do you, as in live audiences. Do you think that's a, is that too uh, outlandish? It's it's a really good question, I, I think, um, and it, it it is a it seems sort of counterintuitive thing, doesn't it, to to try to enumerate what have been the advantages of this or the gains from this extraordinarily difficult time. Now, I think I, my sort of response would be in two parts. One is just a sort of anecdotal thing. 
my goodness me, have have some musicians been extraordinarily creative, haven't they? Through yeah, oh yes. I mean, I I I, I mean, it would be it would take ages for me to say how many amazing things that I've seen. You know, the live Wigmore Hall concerts, for instance. I don't know if you remember, forty days into this, uh, into the 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 lockdown, Stile Antico did um, Speminalium. Um, um, yes, I do. Yeah. Do you remember that the way in which the visuals that you know they, they kept each group came on, each voice came on visibly as well as audibly, and then they, when they stopped singing, they just. I mean, it, it was a new way of thinking about the kind of architecture of that amazing piece. You know, there's it's unlocked a huge amount of creativity, which um, it would be great to think that in some way or another that could be sustained. I think that. Personally, I would really be delighted if there were opportunities for you know, for for an audience member to pay, let us say, to go to Cologne Cathedral or Leeds Cathedral um, to be a, a, um, a member, a paying member of the audience, but not actually there. I mean, this is a model that he's working in in some places, isn't it? Although often, in my experience, it's a sort of voluntary contribution rather than a set price. It's not the same. Of course, we we, we all know that, the thrill of going somewhere. But it does, on the other hand, it does open up, opens up the world, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's a nice, uh, I suppose... uh spotlight we can put on the Thomas Haywood recital and his first piece is actually from Leeds Cathedral one he recorded last year but then he travels to uh, Germany we've got a couple of pieces from Tasmania uh, he ends I think in Lincoln Nebraska um, and of course these are all pre-recorded he hasn't got on co- uh, you know revived Concord for a little sort of transatlantic or trans-Pacific journey but um, it, it does prove that actually we can open up all these organs can't we uh, and these venues I think I, I may be attributing this wrongly but I'm sure the late great Sir Stephen Cleabury was quoted as saying the the most important stop on an organ is its building and of course when we're listening online we, we can't really appreciate that sound I remember hearing also sadly the late John Scott playing in uh, in St Paul's Cathedral, Roibka Sonata, and sitting under that day, you, you just can't replicate that experience, can you, if it's over the internet? No, that's absolutely right. And I suppose we've all got moments like that that particularly linger in the mind, don't they? I mean, for me, one of them is sitting underneath the... Is it called the Corona in, in um, Liverpool Anglican Cathedral? Oh, yeah, yeah. After the installation of those uh, military-grade... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And the, the voluntary was, it was actually, was in fact, it was a military service and the voluntary was Crown Imperial. Um, and the air moved, you know, you could feel the, the, the atmosphere transmitting these, uh, the vibrations of this extraordinary instrument. Yes, I mean, it's, it, the digital experience can do nothing of that. But on the other hand, you know, there are, there are I was very, very privileged to take a little part of in Anna Lapwood's Bachathon. Um, oh yes, twenty-four hours of Bach, which obviously was all pre-recorded, um, and yes, there was no <laughs> there was no sonic acoustic atmosphere other than what came through one's computers. But on the other hand, one went round the entire world seeing different organists playing very, very different instruments in extremely different styles. 
Cameron Carpenter opened it. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, I mean, he plays Bach in a very distinctive way, doesn't he? Um, and then there was, you know, there were some very, there was performances on, on replica and original Bach instruments. So, so it was, you, we wouldn't have thought, I think, about doing anything like that um, no. before this. And it's been, it's, it's had its own reward. I've seen a couple of clips, actually, organists doing... Um, duets. I'm sure I saw a, not long after Easter um, a recording of John Rutter's variations on an Easter theme, and I think I guess obviously one person had put down the guide track, and you could see the other sitting there with headphones on. But it does also make you think, uh, and I know technology will be ever improving to to meet with demand. But th- there's almost, uh, I, I, I suppose, a possibility that we can make the most of this and do so-called collaborative recordings at distance and I'm thinking on my feet here but you, you could say oh we, we could do a, a little uh, let's say Gigou's Grand Coeur Diologue well let's use those wonderful Corona reeds at Liverpool and let's have it as a, in a sort of face-off against the organ of Cologne Cathedral so Liverpool does the reeds Cologne does the the Grand Org and it'd be a bit of editing wouldn't it but you know I'm, I'm sure collaborative or whatever recitals might be a, perhaps I'm just being silly here with a novelty but I guess we can make the most of this technology that we've now all sort of come to accept as some type of normal yes I, yes it's, it's making Hampt work look a bit nervous isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um, yes I mean I think for me one of the one of the difficulties have been, is being able to do live live duets because I haven't discerned the technology that enables us to do that so Kate my Kate my other half in in Cambridge and I have attempted to do various various things play play piano duets together and we can't make it work it's pretty much impossible as far I've used uh, Google and Zoom and I agree I've never quite managed to make it have any good synchronisation. It's a bit unnerving, isn't it? Because one thinks one's own sense of rhythm has been shot to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that went long ago for me. <laughs> I'm sort of, we've, I suppose I could say it's a segue, but one of the topics that's come up in several podcasts actually has been organ and electronics. Um, and I, I mean, not just playing over the internet, but, but use of fixed electronics or, or looping. Um, I'm not an expert in this. I, I've probably done two recitals when I've three when I've included a piece of this by friends, including Hugh Morgan and, um, and Michael Bonaventure. But um, you obviously, in your role as a music critic as well, CD critic, live music, hear a lot of different things. Do, do you think this electronics idea is just a bit too weird, or do you think there might be a, some sort of niche space for it in, uh, let's say, in the mainstream organ world? Well, the, the first. To think to confess is a, a, a very large degree of ignorance uh, uh, about this. I mean, I have had the privilege of hearing Hughes' uh, music and and have the the electronic recording to CD uh, and and Michael Bonaventure's. I mean, it is it, it is an extraordinary opportunity, isn't it, to be able to do well? Let, let's put it in its most negative, straight, positive, literal sense you can create a very wide range of sound very cheaply can't you you don't you don't need an orchestra um and but you can create very uh wide-ranging sound worlds in dialogue with the with the organ um and i think um i i did hear one concert in st giles edinburgh with fixed electronics 
and you, you'll know that that, that uh, Riga organ is um, a huge personality and, and yeah. again makes the air vibrate. But how, um, how interesting it was to pitch that against these almost unearthly, sometimes quite weird sounds. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you sort of thought one was listening to a, a soundtrack for some underwater filming, you know, <laughs> or, 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 or moonscapes and so on. It's, yes, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a really fascinating and kind of achievable um, ensemble, isn't it? I'm sure it would, I probably said this a couple of weeks ago as well, I'm sure it would be something that youngsters, and I think probably more teenagers, but uh, I say youngsters, would be able to relate to when we're thinking about the organ because however much we try and make the organ hip and happening and popular it's inevitable that people are going to think about older music such as Bach or, or, or beforehand and perhaps feel it's not so relevant in the in the modern day and I, I think having played some admittedly very simple electronics and organ pieces there's something undeniably fun about this that the way I when I've performed it I have my computer up um, it, or, or a stopwatch and it was showing a sort of almost a click track and it would say okay at 53 seconds you need to change this chord or stop playing or whatever change registration and I think there's almost something slightly um, enjoyably formulaic about it where you think well I'm going to play along to a click track um, I'm waiting for a particular sound wave to appear on the screen you mentioned some of those otherworldly effects I think Hugh once Hugh Morgan once said to me a friend of his had gone to Heathrow Airport and was recording the sounds made by the jumbo jets and then you know somehow manipulating those to become part of a composition um, and, and one thing he mentioned is you could even get students to go outside with a, a, all kinds of recorders now we've got zoom recorders iPhone voice memo and, and sample something walking through a wood a forest or a, a, a burbling stream and then you can make all kinds of things out of this. Yes a sort of natural and man-made orchestra out there on the street isn't it the sounds that you're that you could that you could use I suppose that the yes there's a there is a technical requirement isn't there in terms of you know the things the kinds of things that you you can do with with the equipment that she's got that's a very serious serious part of the process isn't it I mean I suppose it's, it's worth reminding ourselves isn't it that it's it's not of our generation um uh, it was there, really, wasn't it? I mean, one thinks of Stockhausen, I suppose, um, um, already very, very far ahead of his time in 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 exploring, not always to a great deal of welcome, um, um, uh, the, the the beginnings of the possibilities of this kind of dialogue. Um, I suppose also we could think about the future of recording with this. It's not a, not a leap too far to think about how recordings might. Um, I suppose, manifest themselves in coming years. And again, a topic that's been brought up several times in the course of the last couple of months is where will recordings go from now? Um, I've just been, as a tangent, just been clearing a shelf of CDs. And I think, well, actually, a lot of these I'm probably not going to listen to again or they're on Spotify. Um, I was going to come on to it because I know you do a lot of CD reviews and I know also printed music and all kinds of things with Organist Review and others. What, what do you think about the future of recordings with, with your perhaps your CD critic hat on? Um, well, I, I would like to be more um, optimistic than I, I, I feel, really. Um, it's hard to see, isn't it, that the current rate of 
production of compact discs and the relatively small sales of many of them looks particularly sustainable in this very tricky world that we know is ahead of us financially. One of the things I, I personally think is that we've, and, and I'm speaking of myself here, that I've got to re-educate myself in listening to live music because the editing possibilities for recordings are so advanced now, aren't they, that, um, you know, you can change, um, f make fractional differences to a, a recorded, as you, as you know yourself, of course, much better than me. Um, and it, th that has set a sort of auditory standard, hasn't it? That, you know, when you go to hear um, X playing the Roidka or Y choir singing Bird, sometimes it seems to me we, we need to remind ourselves what happens in live performances, which can include, we hope not, but sometimes it includes blemishes, doesn't it? And something that just, somebody misses something, or there's a note missed out there, or there's a bit of problem with the ensemble work in that, in that moment. And those things that really constitute the liveness of live performance are, I do feel we've got to sort of re-educate ourselves to, I certainly have, to listen to that and to, to know that is what live music is. And that the, the benchmark standard that we think set by these CDs is, it, it, does, it does create a risk, I think. Actually, one of my favourite CDs, I may have said this in this series before, but it's uh, Pierre Cochereau. Uh, I think he was quite young. He was playing the old Cave à Col console in, in, uh, in Notre Dame, Paris. But it was a recording that included Liszt's Ad Nos. I think the CD was called Les Incunables. And um, in a sense, it's warts and all. You can hear action noise, you can hear, I must say, if it was a live recording, very, very few inaccuracies. And I'll say that rather wrong note, inaccuracies. Um, but it's brilliant. And it's, it's one of the most thrilling CDs I think I've listened to on the organ. Um, and they clearly didn't have the editing tools and, and technology back then and you kind of think there's something so much more rewarding about listening to someone who is almost flying by the seat of his pants um, technically accomplished musically fantastic um, and, and then you hear other recordings that you almost get the feeling of being sort of airbrushed um, and I, I, I agree completely with what you say I may also misattribute this quote but I, I'm sure a, a very a good friend of mine and colleague once said he had a lesson with Dame Gillian Weir who said write notes are the enemy of musicality and if she's I'm sure she's not listening if she is I may get hate mail but I, I kind of think there's a little bit of logic in that yes and it's a sort of ongoing age-long kind of debate isn't it I, I think I, I might also be misattributing words to Dame Gillian but I think she's she also says something like you know, the metronome is an enemy of music. You know, obviously she she doesn't mean don't count or don't play rhythmically, <laughs> but there's a, there's a difference there between playing rhythmically and playing metrically, isn't there? Um, and metronomically, at, at, at any rate, yes. I mean, uh, well, you and I have had that, that very interesting conversation recently about the Elgar organ sonata that. The first movement, and I mean that's oh, yeah. that's no. a striking example, isn't it? Where if you 
do, you possibly can play the notes that are on the score, you don't actually necessarily come away with a particularly musical or well-managed performance, do you? Because the, the turns and the awkwardnesses of some of the changes in, in direction and sometimes rather sort of stark emptiness of some of the bars um, is that that's a rather extreme example, isn't it, of, of putting of putting music before the literal notes I, I, I do only play the first mood of that sonata, but I remember a former um, school teacher, who's a very fine organist, saying he'd learnt it, and he sent me a, um, a scan, I think, of an article that David Sanger had done, which I may indeed have shared with you. And this almost gave that sense that, though it was an, an organ piece, you could almost view it as something that had been a transcription, and in doing so, you could put in some embellishments, some, let's say, liberties that you might say, OK, if I, if I was playing an, arrangement, an organ arrangement of Elgar's first symphony, um, I might take certain liberties with it because you see it as a, as a dedicated organ piece. Um, well, I'm not going to dare touch that because that's what Elgar wrote in that. And I think the bar in question, you have to stretch an 11th or 12th, don't you? And it's just it's physically impossible. Um, and I, I confess... I haven't played it many times, but I, I do take some liberties with that piece and almost try and reorchestrate it, knowing that there was no orchestra there to begin with. Uh, then, then it's it's Gordon Jacob, isn't it, who did orchestrate it? Yes, of course, yes. And it's, it, it, then you suddenly hear it as, like, oh, hold on a moment, this sounds as if what organists play is the organ version of this pre-existing orchestral yeah. work, when it's, in fact, it's the other way around. I mean, the other, another piece that strikes me as, as part of this kind of conversation is um, Mozart's fantasy in, in F minor, where, you know, what, 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 one's, what one's competing with really is a, is a version for a mechanical instrument. And, and that's, I, I mean, that, that, that takes some thinking, it seems to me, to, to, to make it wholly convincing on the, on the organ. It's almost a piece that you know in its genesis is unplayable by one person, and as you say, it's, it's trying to make it sound convincing. I must say, one of my favourite recordings, it probably is, I'll nail my colours to the mast now. Um, when I was a kid, I was bought the, um, I think it's called World of the Organ. And it was a... Simon Preston. Yeah, Simon Preston. I guess it was a, well, a CD version of what was once an LP. But I think he used to play it from the... Uh, oh, was it, it was some quite romantic edition, I think. And, you know, full swell appears, clarinet melodies. But even if that's not necessarily what... Mozart would have had in mind I know there's all kinds of uh, contradictions in terms here but it, it's such a compelling performance isn't it and you get to that final um, uh, uh, sort of double fugue moment and it, it's just such a brilliant performance it is I yes I, I did have the LP version of that <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, yes there's something about Preston's playing isn't there that it that suggests a kind of almost iron grip on the stature of the music. There's a sort of masculine power about how he plays, isn't there? I mean, I remember hearing his Deutsche Grammophon recording of the Bach Partita, and just, you know, I, I thought I'd, you know, I'd never heard anything so kind of compellingly dramatic. Um, brilliant player. Again, this is, it's, um, I suppose, a secondary source, but uh, an old colleague of mine who knew Simon Preston once said that he, he, his comment was, well, you, you practice something till it cannot go wrong. And um, I, I think he was known as an organ scholar at King's to put fingerings in the, you know, in the hymn book. And, he's, and 
I guess particularly when you're doing Christmas broadcasts, well, it, would, it would be rather embarrassing to go wrong in the first verse of O Come Ye Faithful. And um, I think when you say that, Iron Grip, he, he just had this phenomenal technique, but also phenomenal attention to detail and obsession with it, I think. And I, I just, perhaps this is wrong, but I, I, I always was told that he, he wouldn't sight read. Not that he couldn't sight read, but he just simply wouldn't. Um, because for this, for the same, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it, it certainly makes sort of emotional sense when you've when you've heard the level of preparation and uh, and control that he has. I could certainly believe that. <laughs> I'm going to just uh, go on a, a bit of a different path now, but um, I know you do a lot of obviously music reviewing. When you're not perhaps doing your English day job and you're not playing the organ, what would you listen to for fun? Well, I I, I spend, or at least I spent. A great deal of time on trains of course and I much enjoyed having a little portable DVD player to watch you know to watch opera on so before just before the lockdown I was riveted by a, an opera that to to my shame I, I hadn't uh, ever listened to or watched before Tchaikovsky's um, Evgeny Onegin with Rene Fleming her singing the letter scene in that recording oh amazing um but for the most part i i have to confess i don't often listen to organ music all that all that much on 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 cds i do sometimes but it's mostly chamber music i find it extremely rewarding to be able to distinguish the 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 lines in 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 music and about four lines is pretty much the the limit of what my <laughs> ear can cope with um so i i have a a, a a huge collection of principally string quartets but um from from you know from from the wonders of haydn all the way up to contemporary string quartet writing and, and also i suppose second to that some of the the great well as many of the great uh, unaccompanied Renaissance choirs, Taliscolis, Stile Antico, and Voce's Age, and so forth. I, I, again, I, I just love the, the clarity of the lines that you can hear. I sometimes remember a, a, a friend of mine who was, in fact, it was my predecessor's organist of my church at home, um, who went off to read uh, for a degree in, in and then a doctorate in, in medieval uh, plain chant. Uh, I remember, I remember her her saying that she thought at the very moment that two voices were heard singing different notes at the same time, and there's evidence of that that when that exactly when that happened in the British Library uh, was the beginning of the death of real music, um, <laughs> and that the real expression was to be found in in plain chant. I mean, it was a slightly flippant comment that she was making, but I. I, I, I the clarity of a single line and its expressive possibilities. I mean, as as you know from lots and lots of chant that happens in in in, in Lee's cathedral, of course, it's an extraordinary expressive medium, isn't it? It is rather brilliant, and uh, you know, I, I I came from this, came at this from an Anglican background beforehand. So reading the Newms was to me, perhaps it is still slightly alien, but but was particularly alien when I started this. But when you look at it and you compare that to modern notation. Uh, the so-called simplicity of it, it's almost giving you a lot more nuance and a lot more depth than our normal 
let's call it our normal modern notation. And I think when you bear in mind these melodies and uh, also how, how well known they were to everyone, I think it's an amazing, if I can call it, amazing musical medium. Yes, uh, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's partly that, um, what you're saying there, it's partly the kind of cultural possession, the, the, the nature of the cultural possession, isn't it? They're not individually created pieces, they're part of a community, a worshipping community, so that we all know what the opening of the Gloria or the Credo, what the, what, what the priest still, often enough, sings in, in the Anglican Church. And that, that belongs to centuries of religious communities, but both monks and nuns and, you know, worshipping secular communities. And it, there's there's something about that sharedness, I think, which is extraordinary. And you, you, I feel it particularly intensely and intently in uh, in the opening of the credo of the B minor mass. Now, you know, Bach's a Lutheran, isn't he? And yet here he's, he's creating a, a mass setting which he surely knew he would never hear. And there you hear that uh, with the... With the with Scarto strings underneath it, you, you hear the opening line, Credo in Unum Deum, to, you know, a version of that ancient sound. It's just, it suddenly it becomes, you know, it, it becomes a sort of voice of Christianity rather than of, uh, it, it's present in the Lutheran, in a Lutheran yeah. composed as a, a serious Lutheran. So transcends denominations almost. I, going back to your point about the uh, the departure from one note to, to multiple being the death of music, I've got a CD. I can't. I think it's a French Abbey, um, but CD of chant, and it, it's not particularly high quality singing. And I think a lot of the of the monks there are clearly um, on the bus pass side of, <laughs> of retirement. But um, it, it's it's evocative, and actually, I think much more so than having it sung by a group of highly trained, you know, postgraduate vocal studies baritones. Um, and that slight vulnerability and, and, and raggedness, I think as you're saying, being part of a worshipping community is all the more, uh, I think, emotive than when you think about, uh, I mean, let's mention one of these fine groups, the 16, uh, Stili Antico, singing various bits of chant, and it will be so clean and so uh, pristine and perfect some part of me, and we go back to our comment about airbrushing uh, recordings, some part of me feels it's missing out almost to have that, that vulnerability of the real monk singing it. There's something rather special about that. Yes, yes, I, I have a recording from a Swiss abbey uh, on my iPad of, of um, sorry, my cat has joined us, uh, of, um, of the Requiem, uh, you know, the Platon Requiem. And there's a, there's a certain sort of rawness about it um it's not it's not you know the 16 singing it but there is again in that I, I absolutely agree i mean i think the exception might might be to this when when i was 14 my my parents stopped off on our, on our french holiday and we saw that there was a you know there was a, an abbey called solemn um, oh, yes. uh, near, near, nearby and um, we went to a service <laughs> unaware of course that uh, you know of the importance of the solemn monks in the rejuvenation of Gregorian chant and they have reached a different kind of perfectness haven't they it seems to me 
There isn't anything raw there, indeed. It's almost the purity of a, the, 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 the closeness together of a single voice. But it's, uh, it has a kind of spiritual intensity that's absolutely unfakeable. It's almost that benchmark, isn't it, of how chant should be sung, I think, when you hear of Solem. Yes, and uh, I know that um, Ian Simcock has done quite a lot of work with and produced a, um, a wonderful CD of the, the monks and uh, Ian on the organ um, in alternation. Um, producing a really wonderfully kind of devout sound. <laughs> As always with these podcasts, um, I think I try and look for a, a lovely high point on which to end. And I think talking about chant, particularly given we're a, a, a festival based at Catholic Cathedral, is a, is a perfect point to wrap it up. Francis, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I think, as with many guests, we, we, we probably could go on and make a sort of niche podcast series. So it's such, been such a treat to chat. All our listeners will, will have clocked now. This is the final of our podcast series. We would be really pleased to hear some feedback from you um, because your comments on this will help us think where do we go uh, where do we go forward with this? We might do some occasional podcasts between now and 2021. My intention is to do a fairly regular series in 2021 as we have this year. So um, if you'd be willing to send us an email, we're always pleased to hear from you. We're also, of course, on Facebook uh, and we have a Twitter account as well. So if you've listened to these, and I know we've been blessed by having listeners from all around the world. If you've listened to this and would like to comment, uh, you might indeed wish to have a new presenter. That's worth hearing if need be. Um, but like to comment, I, we would be delighted to hear from you. My final thing to say is that none of these programmes could happen without uh, the extreme talents of our producer, Catherine Harris. I would like to go on record and thank her for putting together these podcasts. I'm just the one who sits here and talks. She does all the hard work behind the scenes. and I'm hugely grateful to her. So Catherine, uh, thank you for your hard work. We'll, te- we'll miss you terribly when you leave the Diocese of Leeds to go back to university after your year's uh, internship in industry. And a final point, do watch out on social media. We hope all being well to have a festival in 2021, a live festival. Um, So do watch out on our website, keep up to date on social media and uh, all being well, we'll be back live and kicking in 2021. So once again, Francis, thank you so much for finishing our series. Uh, And to all our listeners, thank you for keeping up with us. Thank you for um, spending some time on your Friday lunchtimes to hear what we've got to say. Look after yourselves, stay safe, and we'll see you next year. Bye.